This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. On today's show, we are going to talk about a very interesting strategy we saw in the College Baseball World Series. I know that's a weird topic, but it's actually pretty fun. Matt is dying to tell you all about Luis Arise. Uh, bonus points if you know what team he plays for. I would like to mention that Steven Strasburg is having the career year that nobody seems to be noticing. We have to dig into Alex Dickerson and the Giants run, and then because it's almost trade deadline, uh, I wrote up 20 predictions for 20 trade targets, and I guarantee that only most of them will be wrong because we get one or two of these right every single year. Um, should we start with Michigan? I know this is weird, but I saw this. The I, I'm other loving. Day. I'm loving the college baseball uh, kickoff here. <laughs> this, this isn't. Is... Listen, this isn't Statcast, but it's a fun topic. Uh, I want to take you back to the College World Series a few weeks ago. Michigan and Vanderbilt. Game two of the College World Series. Michigan's DH gets hurt. He strains his left quad. He's unable to play the next day in game three. So for game three, Michigan's coach, Eric Bagich, and he told uh, MLive.com that he had three options to play at DH in uh, to replace his injured regular DH. He said he might go with uh, a senior outfielder, Miles Lewis, a junior outfielder, Dominic Clemente, or a freshman infielder, Riley Bertram. Okay, those seem like three reasonable options. When the lineup came out, the actual starting DH, batting ninth, was freshman starting pitcher Isaiah Page, who had had zero plate appearances in the year, and it actually started Game 2 of the College World Series. So pretty clearly you can see, oh, this is going to be a ruse. What happens is uh, in the top of the second inning, Michigan's up one nothing. Page's spot comes up in the lineup, but he doesn't come up. Riley Bertram comes up, uh, walks, steals the base. Michigan would go on to lose. But I saw this idea, and I thought this is actually kind of fascinating. Could or should American League teams use a strategy like this especially against the opener because think about it you're probably not going to get to the ninth spot in the lineup in the first inning and if you do then things are going great anyway and who cares um but if you are, are trying to see like oh i don't know who the bulk guy is going to be or when he comes in in the second inning and if you've got maybe a dh situation where you have platoon splits like you're not going to do this with jd martinez obviously but what if you're the rays and what if you could put your dh spot ninth and start you know blake snell or charlie morton or yanni chirinos or whoever was the starting pitcher the day before list them as the starting th and then you can decide based on what's happened and what pitcher is you know in or warming for the other team maybe if you want to crush right-handers you would go with g-man Choi, who has a career 809 ops against righties and a career 490 against lefties vice versa maybe you would put in yandy diaz if you want him to crush lefties and he's only okay against righties we haven't seen the strategy yet but it's just weird enough that i feel like some innovative team could do it uh for as matt wisely noted before the show the 10 minutes or so before the practice got banned <laughs> it's it's genius it should this should this should be happening um i'm surprised it, i'm actually surprised it has not happened yet i, I like when mike was telling me about this because admittedly i did not see uh game three of the uh, college world series he was telling me about it I was like, i'm surprised an mlb team has not tried this already most 
The Rays specifically. Well, the Rays because they're the Rays, but also because they've got the right personnel for it. You know, if you've got your, like Oakland, you know, Chris with a K Davis, he's your DH. You're not hitting him ninth, even though I know he's not having a great season. So it's got to be a team uh, that's willing to do something weird and has the right personnel for it. So yeah, it's always probably going to be the Rays, but why, why haven't they done it? What's the reason not to, other than it's just not traditional they don't seem to care about that it's probably some degree of good faith you know it's the same reason the team probably the same reason the teams don't do what we've sometimes seen in the postseason like the brewers did last year where they had what's his name start for and throw to one batter dan jennings yeah that, that, i mean that's the same reason you don't see that just sort of like a good faith like hey like we're gonna put our our team on the field and this is right maybe but, the, i the postseason this postseason that would be very interesting to see because we saw a lot more of that strategy you know in the, in the wild card game the a's basically yeah, it was a bullpen game. Well, Liam Hendricks. Sorry. Yeah, but it wasn't really an opener. It was a bullpen game, but still, it was the same idea. They could have easily, you know, depending on. I mean, obviously, you said they have Chris Davis, but a different team might have said, you know, we're going to try this to kind of get the optimal matchup in the first inning or the first or second inning with our DH. And I guess the uh, requirement is you kind of have to hit your DH eighth or ninth, which a lot of for a lot of teams you don't want to do that. You're not going to hit Nelson Cruz or JD Martinez uh, ninth. But I. I did find what you just said a little interesting. You pointed to what the Brewers did, and you're like, oh, you just don't see that. Well, we just did see that in the postseason. You saw so in the postseason. Like, you don't yeah. see in the regular season, whereas teams could be doing it in the regular season more frequently, especially with the way modern pitching staffs are used. I guess that's fair. I, now I just I want to see it. I want to see who's the first team. Uh, and now it's been like a month, right? And now I want someone to do it like tomorrow, proving that they listen to the podcast. Uh, you heard it here first. This is going to happen in the postseason this year. Really? Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. Well, now we really need the Rays to get back <laughs> because they are the most likely team to do it. Okay, moving on to uh, the Minnesota Twins and Matt's new favorite player and soon to be your new favorite player, Luis Arise. I can honestly say I did not know very much about him uh, entering the season, but he is now hitting 371, 444, 483. That is quite good for a player that you don't know much about. I'm going to now seed the floor to Matt for his new binky, Luis Arise. Go for it. And it, is, it is just a coincidence he's also named Luis, like my other favorite player, <laughs> Luis Perdomo. Um, I did not know much about Luis Arise until last week. I was watching the Mets against the Twins. It was the ninth inning. The Mets were winning 3-2. Edwin Diaz had just struck out Miguel Sano. Jonathan Scope was up. He got Jonathan Scope down 0-2, and Scope left the game with like a – it looked like he maybe like tweaked his oblique or something, so they took him out of the game. So Luis Arise comes in to pitch hit, 0-2 count, coming in basically cold. He was not prepared to pinch hit because like, you know, Scope was hitting and they had the middle of the order up. He comes in against Edwin Diaz, immediately has one of the more impressive at-bats I've seen when you consider he came in down 0-2. Um, 100 miles an hour, fouls it off. 99, fouls it off. 99, fouls it off. 100 takes a ball, 99 takes a ball, 99 fouls it off, 100 takes a ball, fouls off a 93-mile-an-hour slider, and then takes ball four. And it was just like a really impressive bat. I was like, okay, who is this guy? That is like, you don't really see that very often. This guy clearly has good bat-to-ball skills. Well, sure enough, he essentially, he's been hitting 300 throughout the minors in his career um, he just doesn't really ever hit for any power. I think he had five. Uh, six. I think he looked it up. Six career minor league home runs. Although he already has two since he got called right. to the majors this year. Um, he was ranked as the Twins' number 19 prospect coming into the year by MLB Pipeline. Uh, in the scouting report, they basically said, if not for Alex Kirloff or maybe Royce Lewis, uh, Arise is the best, quote-unquote, pure hitter, just pure hit tool in the system. And what's interesting about him, to me, is that he's an extreme, no like, 
does not strike out. His 6.8% K rate is the second lowest in baseball, minimum 100 plate appearances. What's also interesting about this... Wait, behind who? Behind who? Williams Estadio is the Estudio. So number one on the list is a twin. Number two is now a twin. And then number three, <laughs> four, and five are all in the Angels. And Drilton Simmons, Tommy LaStella... And David Fletcher. Um, this year in a brief stop in AAA, Arise had a 2.7% K rate. <laughs> um, he's at 8.1% for his entire MLB career. Um, in 1,500, in almost 1,600 plate appearances across six minor league seasons, he struck out 129, 129 times. For context, Domingo Santana has already struck out 132 times this season. So I'm interested in players like Arise because there's not a lot of, a lot of guys like, like him in the game, you know, Jeff McNeil has been getting a lot of attention for being the guy who's kind of like, you know, succeeding with batting average again with kind of a very like 1980s approach. And Arise seems to be that 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 kind of archetype as well. And he's, he's getting he's doing it honestly, like he's not hitting the ball hard. He actually has a very low. He's, he's extremely not hitting the ball. hard. <laughs> he's extremely low hard hit rate. Of 405 players with 50 balls in play this season, his hard hit rate of 19.8% ranks 394th. However, his expected weight on base of 375 is 34th of 376 players with 100 plate appearances. So he's doing something right. It's not. A, this is not a pure fluke. He's. My, I'm assuming, and I'll admit I didn't have a, enough time to really dive into this, I'm assuming his... He's kind of keeping in the sweet spot in terms of launch angle of not hitting any pop-ups or not hitting any soft soft grounders. Is is his batting average on balls in play like 900 or it something is, like that? It is. It's 387. Okay. Which is not like insane for a player like this. It's high. I wouldn't expect him to – you know, his expected batting average is 321. His actual batting average is 371. But I think that there's a path here for a player to be, you know, kind of what you're seeing with, with Jeff McNeil is this player who could, who's legitimately – a 320 hitter who he's only 22 who could grow into a little bit of, of doubles power. Yeah, I don't have any particularly strong thoughts on Luis Arise, but the the type of player and what you mentioned about how there are two teams, the Twins and the Angels, who have the five lowest strikeout rate guys. That kind of seems to be uh, a big change in baseball because as everybody knows, strikeouts have gone up for decades. I guess now it feels like, uh, and a lot of that's just been velocity and nasty pitches and more relievers. But it's also been hitters just don't care about striking out as much. They don't care about their batting average. There's not as much shame in striking out. Um, if you think about the guys like Phil Rizzuto, who would strike out like nine times in 600 plate appearances, they weren't hitting for any power, you know? And now with the way the game is playing, uh, if you don't need to sell out for power, maybe the pendulum will swing back to finding guys who make great contact, like Jeff McNeil, uh, like DJ LeMahieu is a great example. Or like what Listella was doing before he got hurt. It's exactly right. Uh, and, and I'm really, it's something I want to dig into later this year is trying to find some of these guys, maybe in the minors, who make, uh, you know, Estudio, it was like everybody's favorite example, he got hurt. Uh, guys who make great contact and maybe that will, you know, be more valuable now than it used to be, which I guess in some weird perverted way would make the old school fans like very happy. Like Homer ball turning into contact ball would be kind of fun. I like variety. I also think that I do think, and I might lose my like uh, sabermetric bona fides for for saying this, <laughs> but I, I do think that there's something to be said for having a lineup in which there's a variety of types of hitters so that pitchers, when they're game planning, have to sort of think differently. It's not just, oh, I like here's just a, a, a team full of like home runner, like three true outcomes guys. I think that like having a variety in your lineup has some, in terms of like the, uh, the game theory, the game within a game kind of thing has some value. So I think having guys like this on your roster, and what's interesting also about Arise, 
He's playing three positions. Last night he started a triple play in the first inning, which probably is why most fans have first heard of this guy um, while playing third base, which is not his natural position. So uh, He's playing at the outfield now, too, which he'd never played before. New favorite player. Um, Louis, the new favorite position player, I'm, I'm Luis Arise. I'm looking at our notes here, and you're uh, referring to him as Marwin Light. That's one of my colleagues referred to him last night as last, last night. I was like, oh, that's I could kind of see that. Okay, I'll buy it. Um, also, a fun fact, the last player to qualify for the batting average title with a strikeout rate below 6.8, Victor Martinez uh, in 2014. He also slugged 565. Victor Martinez, forever, somehow an underrated player, I always kind of thought. Yeah, well, he kind of had was a late bloomer, and then also on those... His, he had some of his best years late in his career on those Tigers teams where they had so many stars. Yeah, right. That he was like, M- Miggy was at his peak, winning you know, winning the Triple Crown, winning MVPs. They also had Verlander and Scherzer. So it was, he was kind of like the fourth or fifth banana on those teams. I want to talk about Steven Strasburg for a second. He has been, uh, I don't know, you can't call him post-hype, but you remember when he was in San Diego State and was just blowing everybody away. It was the obvious number one pick. He was an unbelievably hyped prospect, probably like one of the five most hyped prospects I can ever think about uh came up was dominant right away got hurt had the whole you know being shut down in the playoff race thing and for the last couple years has been like more good than great you know he's never thrown 240 innings but he's never been terrible like he's generally been a solidly above average pitcher which is only a disappointment in the sense that you expected him to be kind of the best pitcher that you ever saw and very very quietly this year he is having sort of the career year that it seems like nobody is noticing. And what I mean by that is when you look at expected weighted on base, which is a metric we use quite often, it accounts for quality of contact and also amount of contact. And you look at all the starting pitchers who face 250 batters, he is second best at 259. Now, part of the issue here is second best in the majors is also second best on his own team because Max Scherzer, who I think last week we talked about is awesome, continues to be awesome at 248. But number one is Scherzer, number two, Strasburg, then Garrett Cole, Blake Snell, and Hyunjin Ryu. Uh, that's really, really good. And if you look at his annual expected weighted on base, this is the fifth year now we have it. This is his best. In 2015, he was at 267, then 275, 273, 306. This year, down to 259. And if you combine the five years, he has the eighth best mark behind some true super studs. Kershaw, Scherzer, DeGrom, Verlander, Sale, Kluber, Granke. I don't feel like people think about Steven Strasburg as a top 10 starting pitcher, um, but the way he's pitching this year, maybe they should. It's, the reason it's 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 kind of going unnoticed is because his ERA, which is what most people look at, is 3.52, which is fine. Last year was 3.74, which is less fine. Year before that was 2.52, which sort of was like yeah. considered his like his breakout year. But that's that's sort of why it's not quite. I think that's you know the, the obvious reason why it's not quite getting the. Um, the hype, but yes, the secondary numbers are amazing. I mean, uh, 151 strikeouts thir- versus 32 walks. He's pitching like an ace, and as the Nats look more and more like a playoff team, granted, more likely a wild card team. Although it's not out of the realm the possibilities that they catch the um, they catch the Braves if they get to the DS. The one, their one two is. One, two, three. Their top three is probably better than any team. And Annabelle Sanchez, who's their four, has actually been pretty good. But yeah, you're right. That's scary. I, I would wonder uh, if his inflated ERA has something to do with the fact that for the first two months of the season, the Nats bullpen uh, was just a total tire fire if they were allowing earned runs in. And also their defense hasn't really been that good this year, at least in the infield. The outfield's been, the outfield's been very good. good, as we talked about last week. Uh, he's made a couple changes this year. 
he is, for the first time, throwing his curveball as his primary pitch. 31% uh, curveball usage. He'd never thrown the curveball more than any of his other pitches before. That's just about the most 2019 thing I think I can think of, is that here's a guy who's always been known for the fastball. The curveball is now his number one pitch. But the exact opposite of that is he's throwing his sinker more. Every other pitcher on earth is dumping their sinker. He has tripled its usage from 7% to 20%. And what this has all done is he's increased his strikeouts up to just over 30%. But he's also got a career-high 51% ground ball rate. So if you can miss bats and you can keep the ball on the ground in the world of homer ball, that's going to be really uh, a valuable combination. Also, he's dropped his hard hit rate from 39% to 32%. That is just the best combination you can think of. Strike out a lot of guys, don't walk anybody, don't allow hard hits, and when you do, keep it on the ground. Like, you couldn't define a more effective pitcher than that even if he's not the best pitcher on his own staff, because Max Scherzer is a first ballot Hall of Famer. And one thing I will mention, if you kind of compare him um, to other number one overall picks, you know, he's, he's 31 years old now, so he you know, theoretically has a few good years remaining. And if you look at you know all-time number one picks, and granted, you don't necessarily need to compare him only to number one picks, but just for some context, right now he's like 13th in career war amongst number one overall picks, but he's like basically tied with, here are some names, Andy Bennis, Darren Erstad, Rick Monday, BJ Serhoff. He's o- he's only seven more behind Harold Baines, who just went into the Hall of Fame this Did weekend. He? he just turned thirty-one, like over the weekend too. So, like, I mean, granted, there's a couple guys right around him who are still who are still active, who could sort of sway this a little bit. David Price and Bryce Harper specifically, but like looking at the list of the more overall picks in terms of WAR on Baseball Reference, you know, you've got Daryl Strawberry at forty-two, which is one, two, three four, five, sixth all time among number one overall picks. Like Strasburg's probably gonna get I think he's I would bet he gets more than eleven more for the rest of his career. You know, so like between him and David Price and Upton he's gonna be and between him, David Price, Justin Upton, they're all gonna be like amongst the top like five to nine number one overall picks of all time. So while Strasburg might feel kinda like a bust, in any reasonable world, he's definitely not a bust. I, I wouldn't say bust, but like Disappointment. Yes, fine. Bust is the wrong word. Disappointment is a better word. But yes, and he clearly has been. And this is interesting. A couple years ago, he signed a contract extension. Seven years, $175 million. Wildly backloaded, so it gets complicated when you start thinking about the future value of money and all that. Uh, but at the end of this year, he can opt out of his remaining four years and $100 million. And I think he can also opt out at the end of next year as well. If you look at the starting pitching market this winter, uh, Bumgarner, Garrett Cole, does he want to do that? Like, I don't know if it's so hard to say what's going on in free agency now. I don't know if he could definitely top that, but the way he's pitching and he's actually been pretty healthy over the last couple of years, I feel like he's got a shot. I don't think he will, but if he did, that would certainly make the free agent market uh, a whole lot more interesting. I think it's what's more likely is maybe him potentially trying to like use it as leverage to maybe get an extra year or two from the Nationals, like almost like a mini extension, which we've seen some players do before. Kershaw did it last offseason. CeCe Sabathia did it a few years ago, using the opt-out as like a leverage um, to uh, to get a little bit more. Same thing, uh, J.D. Martinez has an opt-out this offseason too. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and the Nationals also have to worry about uh, Anthony Rendon, who's going to be a free agent uh, at the end of this year. I don't feel like we can do this show right now without talking about the Giants, who I, I, I can't imagine what is going through the mind of Farhan Saidi, you know, who's like, okay, I'm here. It's my first year. This is Bochi's like retirement ride. We're going to, we're kind of rebuild. The Giants are two games out in the National League wild card. Uh, they lost on, on June 27th. They lost the game. They were 34 and 46, 20 and one half games out in the National League West. Since then, 
They are 17 and four, the best record in Major League Baseball. They've scored the most runs. They are now two games out of the National League wild card. Uh, Washington and St. Louis are the first two wild card teams, and then the Phillies and Brewers are half a game out, and the Giants and Diamondbacks are two games out. Obviously, that will change just so much every day, and they are making it really interesting because. You sort of assumed Bumgarner was going to get traded, and Will Smith and Tony Watson and Sam Dyson and every reliever that they possibly have. And now I don't know if that's true, um, but we'll get to that in a second. What I really want to focus on is their outfield. I've really enjoyed watching Zaidi just fly through outfielders this year. You would win <laughs> such an interesting bar bet <laughs> if you could name the three starting outfielders for the Giants this year on opening day. I have them listed here. I swear these are all three real names. Uh, none of them are in the major leagues right now. Connor Joe. You're making him up. He's definitely made up. Steven Duggar. I def- no, he's a, he's a real person. Michael Reed. <laughs> that was their opening day outfield. Uh, unsurprisingly, in April, the Giants had the 26th best outfield in terms of Windsor Brook placement at negative 0.6. In May, it was also negative 0.6. In June, plus 0.7. And in July, plus 1.7. They have a top 10 outfield right now. Uh, they have gone through 14 outfielders. The three I mentioned, Gerardo Parra, Kevin Pillar, Mike Yastrzemski, Alex Dickerson, Tyler Austin, Austin Slater, Brandon Belt, Yangervis Solarte, Mike Gerber, Stephen Vogt, Mac Williamson. I have just named some guys. Many of them are no longer in the organization. But anyway... The point here is that through all of the mixing and matching, Zaidi has come up with what briefly at least seems to be a very interesting combination. And the guy who's the most interesting to me is Alex Dickerson, uh, who actually started off the year with with San Diego, where he'd been for a few years. And I want to get through his backstory in a second. But first, he was called up on June 21st, his first game with the Giants. He singled, tripled, and hit a home run. Since then, he's hitting 397. 463, 795. Since June 21st, there are 285 players who have come to the plate 50 times. The guy with the best weighted on base is Yuli Gurriel, who's been tearing it up for Houston. Number two, Alex Dickerson at 512, just ahead of DJ LeMahieu, Mitch Garver, and Raphael Devers. Now you might think to yourself, 512, that's an insane number. He must be overperforming. And that's true, but it's also not. His expected weighted on base is 456. So yes, he's overperforming. But that number is also the second best. So he's overperforming, and he's also murdering the ball. Uh, he's got a 50.8% hard hit rate, 13th best in baseball. I were talking about like, I don't know, 100 and something plate appearances. I don't expect him to be uh, the new guy, but you always sort of like Zaidi's teams have kind of come up with these guys. I'm not saying he's the next Max Muncy or Chris Taylor. But I'm not saying he's not either. The, the Muncie comp is kind of a decent one in my mind in terms of like Dickerson's a guy who's always hit. He was, you know, in college he was he was a, like he was a guy. Like he he won the 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 triple crown of the Big Ten as a sophomore in 2010. And then basically what happened was he was going into the 2011 season, going into the draft. He was considered maybe like the best college hitter in the draft. And what happened was they switched the the bat regulations in college baseball that year, and his stats kind of took a big hit. So there was this like belief, like, oh, maybe he was just a product of the the like the fancy bats from the year before and of the from the previous like era, and that he wasn't going to be able to produce with with wood bats at the at the pro level. But even going into the 2011 draft, I went back and looked MLB Pipeline had him ranked as the number 37 prospect, um, sandwiched between Brian Goodwin and Andrew Chafin, in case you were wondering. Um, but uh, he fell to the third round, and you know he couldn't really uh he didn't have a defensive profile so even though he's hit at basically every he's hit at every level of the minors in the pro in every full season he's played he's had an OPS of at least 800 which is reasonable and, and in more recent years better although he missed two full seasons of the minors to 
It was 2016 and 17. He missed off 2017 with a back injury and all of last season with Tommy John surgery. So he's kind of been off the radar, but like the hit tool was always there. He's just sort of like the guys like that where you don't really have a defensive position, you have to really hit. And while he's hitting the minors, he's never hit to the point where you're like, oh, we have to find a spot for this guy in our lineup. But the desperate Giants were finally like, okay, let's give this guy a shot. He's got some ability to hit, and well, what do you know? I, I didn't realize this until I was looking him up. As you mentioned, he was a third rounder, but I hadn't remembered he'd been drafted by Pittsburgh, and I thought to myself, that's interesting. I don't I don't know how he got to the Padres. I should go find out. He was involved in a very fun, uh, probably completely ignored trade in 2013, but now it looks very fun. In November, 25th, November 25th of 2013, Alex Dickerson was traded from Pittsburgh to San Diego for Miles Michaelis, which was interesting, obviously, before he went to Asia uh, and then came back. So in 2015 and 2016, he had uh, 293 plate appearances for the Padres. As you said, he got hurt, missed the next two years, and then just got kind of lost. The Padres have entirely too many outfielders and just not enough room to play them all. He actually did get into 12 games for the Padres this year, got DFA'd on June 5th, was traded to the Giants five days later for just an outstanding 80-grade name. Franklin Van Gerp, which I'm so happy I got to say. Uh, and then, as we mentioned, called up on 621. And now he and, like, you know, Pilar and Mike Yastrzemski and Austin Slater have kind of congealed into this interesting short term, probably, but whatever, of uh, outfield quartet, which it's fun. I, I mean, you, you mentioned Zaidi finding outfielders. He did that when he was with the, with the Giants, I mean, with the Dodgers, rather. If if he was suddenly like the you know you know Max Muncie type who suddenly would just emerge at the age twenty six twenty seven and was like a very good major league hitter, it would not surprise me uh, in the least. He's, I'm not, he's got the pedigree. He's, he's not going to be again. He's not going to be a you know a five hundred woba guy for his career, but an above average hitter. Yes, I can total. I can totally see it. But this whole this whole like uh, transitional period for the Giants, this winning streak aside, has been fascinating because you know obviously they had been very successful for a number of years. Three rings, everybody knows it, uh, but they sort of bottomed out. And then, you know, Brian Sabian and Bobby Evans moved on, and now they have Zaidi, and this is Bochi's final year. It's very clearly like a changing of the guard. Zaidi is going to do things differently. And part of it is watching these guys uh, get flipped around, but part of it is seeing some of the guys who were there start to improve. And I wonder if we're starting to see that with Tyler Beatty. He is a guy who's been kind of kicking around there for a couple years, uh, never really was successful. And even this year, through June 21st, he had gotten into seven games, 28 innings, 6.67 ERA. Uh, since then, he's made five starts, 2.90 ERA. And there is one big, clear difference. He has started throwing a slider. It is now his second most used pitch. He's throwing it 18% of the time. He's allowed one hit, a single on it, uh, in five starts. So that's really interesting. It's just kind of fun to see how guys who are there can improve because of the the new people around him. Obviously, you know, they've hired some drive-on people like Matt Daniels. Um, I'm not saying Tyler Beatty is the next big thing. This is just a very different Giants team. I don't think they're going to trade Madison Bumgarner. And that is a professional segue into our next topic. Uh, Matt had asked me to write 20 predictions for 20 trade guys. I've done this in years past, and I usually nail like three of them, which I have to say is probably a pretty good success rate. Uh, I'll take that. So uh, I came up with 20. These are not the only 20 guys. I, I angered all of Braves Twitter by not listing them with a reliever. Obviously, more than 20 guys are going to get traded. These are just the 20 guys. I thought was interesting. Um, I'm going to, uh, you're going to share this list with me because I don't want to talk through the entire <laughs> list of 20 games by myself. I've decided Madison Bumgarner is staying put. And I think Zaidi is in sort of a weird spot. You can't tear it all down now. They're two games out, but he is realistic enough to know that this is in some sense a mirage. Like they are probably not going to get there. And I think you can deal from some of the strength in the bullpen, keep Bumgarner because 
I don't think some of the more analytically advanced teams are going to give you a boatload for him because his hard hit rate is high, his velocity is not high, though he's pitched pretty well. You keep him, uh, maybe you resign him. At the very least, you get a qualifying offer of draft pick for him. Bumgarner is interesting. Um, he's actually throwing harder this year um, than he did last year. His four seamers up almost the full full mile priority. He's been pitching well of late. I think. I mean, we actually literally just got an, an alert uh, with a John Hamer report saying, "No way, Giants can sell. They're on fire." That was a quote from a rival MLB exec. Um, and I don't think they should for a variety of reasons. One of which is, as you said, they can keep Bumgarner. He'd be worth giving a qualifying offer to. I think that one of the most likely scenario is they give him a qualifying offer. The market for him becomes tepid, and they kind of re-sign him to a modest three-year deal. He gets to stay in San Francisco, where he kind of like has that legacy. Everyone's happy, and sure, they have a lot of relievers who. Um, would have trade value. The thing is, most of them, or some, some of the best ones, like Will Smith, they're they're free agents this year, this offseason, so they're not going to have a ton of trade value. And if you're the Giants and you kind of want to go for it, and there's kind of reason to think that they should, their bullpen is the biggest reason for their success. The Giants are 23-10 and 10 in one-run games this year. That's not an accident. That's because they have one of the best bullpens in baseball, right? So the formula for them staying in it is to keep – a dominant bullpen around. It's not like Will Smith and, uh, you know, uh, what's uh, Sam, Sam Dyson and Tony Watson, I think all of whom are free agents this offseason. Uh, Dyson is not. Dyson is not. Okay, are going to bring back a ton in trade. And you're the Giants. You actually have a, a fan base that comes out and supports you when you win. Like, you got the Bochi who's loved, beloved in his last season. Just roll the dice. It'll be a fun fans want a reason to come to the ballpark in August, September and see games that matter. Like it's not like they're going to bring, if it would be one thing, if they could be like, Oh, we can bring back some guys who would really reinvigorate, reinvigorate our farm system. That's not going to happen. They, I think they should, they should just hold on. I don't think they should buy. I think they should stand pat. No, I disagree with you on that. I, I, I think Zaidi needs to thread the needle, right? Like you can't blow it all up and not have this fun run. I agree with you. Um, but you can also stand pat and not do anything to improve. I think I think Will Smith, he's the second one on my list. I have him go to the Twins. Um, I think he will bring back more than you think because he may be the best reliever available. Um, I don't think he's going to bring back, you know, Glaber Torres or anything like that. But every contender needs relief help, like so desperately. I said the Twins, it could have been the Nationals, it could have been the Red Sox, it could have been the Dodgers, whatever. I think they'll get something decent for him. And their farm system's pretty thin, right? Like if you can get a nice outfield prospect from Minnesota, I don't know their farm system well enough to name some names. Um, I think that they could do that. So that's why I have Smith going to the Twins, Tony Watson going to the Cardinals, who desperately need a left-handed reliever. And if you do that, you still have Dyson, and you still have Reyes Maranta, who I'm huge on, and you still have uh, Trevor Gott and probably three other relievers who I can't even remember. They have so many good relievers out there. That is that is what I think uh, they will do. I cannot imagine that Zaidee makes no moves. That would be shocking to me. I guess we'll see. Um, next on my list, uh, Jake Diekman. Did you know the Astros don't really have a left-handed reliever? So I did I, know that. Yes, yeah, so yeah, I bet you did now. They have the uh, fourth worst relief pitching performance from lefty relievers obviously they need a starter they'll get a starter uh but i think deekman who's pitching pretty well gets a ton of strikeouts from kansas city to houston would make some sense number five on my list this was the one i got the most positive feedback because people are like oh i hadn't thought about that that makes a lot of sense like this is my favorite one of all marcus stroman everybody thinks he's going to the yankees maybe houston marcus stroman i'm saying oakland athletics i love it i think it's perfect think about it they desperately need a starting pitcher yes he is a ground ball guy. Their infield defense is very good, right? Chapman, Olsen, Marcus Semien. Uh, they have made these moves before. Remember, they traded for John Lester and Jason Hamill and Jeff Samarja, and it didn't all work out. 
but they have proven that they will make these kind of moves. Before. And only Lester of those guys, if I recall, was a rent. No, I guess Hamill was a rental too, but Samarja was not. But they ended up just trading him in the last. For Simeon. Yeah, that's because Thomas Russell and, for Simeon. And these two teams have made deals before, most notably the, the, the Josh, Josh Donaldson trades. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the A's would be, maybe well, the A's would be gun shy. Different front office. That was, that was Anthopolis, at least out there uh, in Toronto. And I think it's like a sneaky under the radar move that a team like the A's could make. I actually came up, I don't usually try to forecast like prospects going back because I just don't know the minor leagues well enough. But what do you think about, I'm going to try my best to pronounce this right, uh, third base prospect Sheldon Noisy, I believe, okay. who is clearly blocked by Matt Chapman forever as part of a deal back to Toronto. And then you can have him at third base and move Vlad Jr. to be the first base DH we all know he's going to be someday soon. Fair, although when I've watched Blue Jays, Vlad's actually looked pretty good. He's looked okay. <laughs> I don't think long term, but he's he's. I don't know. Okay. Like Miguel Cabrera played third a lot longer than people kind of expected him to. Uh, so anyway, that was my uh, my one A's thing, and my other A's one here was uh, Corey Dickerson, who is you know not a long term pirate. He's a free agent at the end of the year. If you look at the A's, you know Chris with the K Davis hasn't done much. Piscotti hasn't done much, and he's hurt. Uh, Robbie Grossman is you know fine. Chad Pinder's playing too much in the outfield. Corey Dickerson just seems like. It's a shock to me he hasn't already been an A, you know? So, like, <laughs> He's kind of, exactly. He, he definitely fits the uh, the A's archetype, sure. I mean, you know, if there's one team that's going to make a couple of moves here, it's definitely the A's. Yes. They're going to, like, do, you know, mix and match on their roster. That's kind of what always, and that's always been, you know, uh, under Billy Bean and David Force, it's always been their kind of MO is like you spend the first couple of months figuring out what you have, and then if you're still in it, you uh, you kind of try and make some moves often around the margins. Although in some years they've made some big moves, like uh, when they went all in for for Lester, and then moves you didn't realize were big at the time, like when they traded Sean Doolittle for Blake Trinan. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, Zach Greinke, I have Zach Greinke going to the Phillies, and the reason for that is the Phillies rotation. Aaron Nola has been very good lately, but Arietta is obviously hurt. Uh, uh, Nick Pavetta hasn't been great. Eflin and Velasquez are giving up home runs left and right. And yet they are still right in the playoff on. I believe they're half a game out. They can get Granky, assuming he would waive his no trade clause, which is usually doable, for probably nothing more than money. And they have, uh, even with signing Harper, they have a ton of room uh, below the competitive balance tax this year and next. And my, my theory here is, even though it's been a trying season for them, you don't go get Bryce Harper and JT Lormuto and McCutcheon. I know he's hurt. Uh, to stand still like they're going to keep going for it Granky to me is one of the more fascinating players the deadline for a few reasons um one of which is that like he's just a he's managed to continue to be a a well above average pitcher over the years even as his he's you know he's throwing like he throws like 90 now right. which i think reflects well on his ability to continue to be good for the remainder of his contract so there's that and then also the fact that yes he kind of get getting paid a lot his contract looks big on paper but there's a ton of deferred money so actually, there's a lot of flexibility for a team that trades for him. So like even like basically a third of his contract is deferred. He's going to be owed like 10 million every year from 2022 to 2026. So even though his salary number for the next three years is 31 million, he's getting paid 21 million in each of those seasons. Which like for the pitcher that he is in terms of like paying him for that in a given season is is totally reasonable. If you're a team like the Phillies that has a lot of long term payroll flexibility, that deferred money isn't so isn't so crazy. Yeah, I, I didn't have uh, Robbie Ray on my list because I don't think the Diamondbacks will trade both Ray and Granky. but if not Granky, then probably Ray somewhere. I, you know, I don't like to put too much stock in this, but like, if I'm... I, Robbie Ray is fun when he's on. He's not a guy I would fully trust in a big playoff game. He's so wild. He's so... Like, yeah. against a good discipline lineup, like Granky, I would I would, I would would trust. Ray is the kind of guy that could you end up, end up with your bullpen in the second inning against a good team. And like, I wouldn't want to pay... 
when I, if I'm a team that's basically, okay, I want a guy for my postseason rotation, I wouldn't want to put my all my chips in that basket. So I wouldn't want to pay a big a big uh, a pig freight for him as like a mid season pickup. Granted, he has one more year of team. He control. does have one more year. And Greinke, one more thing is he has, does not have a full no trade clause. He has a 15 team no trade. Um, Philly is on it. Atlanta is not, which I think is interesting because to me, Atlanta is another team that's in a similar boat. Has a lot of long term payroll flexibility. They seem could, less likely to use it to me than Philly does. True, but they're—I mean—they they got they signed Acuna and Alves to such reasonable long-term deals that it's kind of like a little bit of like you know, Grinky. They could certainly fit Grinky into the uh, the long the uh, long-term uh, payroll outlook. Uh, number seven on my list, Zach Wheeler. I know he's injured, but he threw a bullpen the other day. Is supposed to make one more start before the trade deadline. Um, Houston, Houston desperately needs a starting pitcher. Matt and I are currently the number four and five Houston starting <laughs> pitchers. Uh, I can't think, well, Syndergaard. But aside from that, I can't think of a better example of a pitcher who would go to Houston and get better. Right? He's already been pretty good. His strikeout rate's up. His walk rate is down. Uh, his ERA is not good. Uh, this probably goes to the Mets' defense and bullpen. Zach Wheeler, if he's healthy with the Astros, is like it's a perfect fit. I, I love it. I, I don't think it's, I don't know if it's going to happen because he's got to prove he's healthy. But I don't think they're getting Syndergaard. Well, that's the thing about Wheeler is I don't really know what his trade value is now. I mean, if he comes out on Friday and looks amazing and, you know, kind of I don't even know who they're playing. Pittsburgh, I think. But blows the doors off the Pirates and looks great. Sure, then maybe you actually could get a legit prospect for him. But if he looks a little shaky, if I think if I were the Mets, i just hold on to him and give him a qualifying offer. I don't see them doing that, but I think there's an argument for it. That's for sure. I mean, that's um, – I feel like – because similar to what I was saying before about Bumgarner, I feel like there's a world, depending on how the second half goes, you give him a qualifying offer and probably re-sign him on uh, a reasonable, like, you know, you know three- or four-year deal because the Mets don't really have any long-term pitching depth either. Yes, they've no. got they've – got, uh, DeGrom and Syndergaard for next year, but, like, Mats is just – you know, Mats is just a guy. He's a guy. And – Right now they've got Jason Vargas who's a free agent after this year. And then like in the minors, they don't have a lot coming up. So they actually need a rotation for next year. If they're supposedly not going to rebuild, having Zach Wheeler around would be pretty useful. Yeah, I didn't have uh, Vargas on my list because, you know, like I said, only 20 names. But if I did, I would probably have him go into Milwaukee, I guess, because they desperately need somebody. Uh, number eight, Eric Sogard. I'm cheating here. He's going to the Cubs, and this is because they've already been linked in rumors. Uh, I have so many feelings about Eric Sogard. He's crushing the ball. Like if, if sort of his outcomes are crushing the ball. He's hitting. I don't have it in front of me. You know, three twenty with power or whatever. Uh, he has <laughs> of everybody in baseball who has hit at least two hundred batted balls the weakest hard hit rate, which is kind of scary and not un- entirely unsurprising. He's you know been this guy uh, and now he's in his age thirty three season. However. He makes a lot of contact, uh, better than average strikeout rate, can play a couple positions, and the Cubs have just gotten nothing from second base. Like Addison Russell has been terrible. Uh, he basically could be replacing Daniel Descalso, who was supposed to be that guy. So this is a low-impact move for the Cubs, who could probably really use uh, an outfielder and get Albert Almora out of the lineup, but that's where I'm going to go with. All right, here's my favorite one. Yasiel Puig. Now, we talked about how great he's been last week. To the Cleveland Indians. Listen, I would love for this It's so right? good. First of all, I want I want to see a live stream of the first conversation between Trevor Bauer and Yasiel Puig as teammates. I think that would be a lot of fun. Uh, as we talked about last week, Puig got off to a really uh, wretched start first four or five weeks and has been fantastic for the last two months. Crushing the ball. The Reds have slumped. They're in last place. They're, a, I don't know, seven or eight games out of first place. They are not going to make the playoffs this year, and they will probably sell off some of the guys who are uh, impending free agents because I don't think they're going to sign Puig long term. The Cleveland outfield has actually, to its credit, been better lately. We crushed it a lot early on, uh, but Tyler Naquin's been okay, and, and um, Oscar Mercado has been okay. 
they could still use Puig. They are, what, three games out in the Central right now? They are in possession of a wild card spot. I know that. Puig is entertaining in every possible way, but he's he's crushing the ball right now, and um, he will improve their outfield defense as well. I'm not sure I see it happening, but this is where I'm, I'm going. I mean, the, the Reds at this point, um, they probably should sell. You know, we've talked about how they have have a positive run differential and probably are better than the record indicates, but the thing is... It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> at this point, it doesn't really matter. There's so many teams kind of, you know, lumped together. Puig is probably their best... Of their pending free agents, he's their best trade chip. Uh, better than Roark, yeah. I guess. Yeah, like, so I think you... Unless you think you're going to give him a qualifying offer, but they actually have a lot of corner outfielder types. I don't think he's I don't, a long. T- I don't think he's a long term fit there. So um, if you think he, if you can get a reasonable return for him, it would make a lot of sense. Indians would be such a great fit. It's like they kind of have a. They they feel you feel like they need a little bit of like an injection of something, and like Puig we, definitely would be that. Uh, I, so I actually lumped three somewhat similar right-handed hitting, right field ish DH type guys together. Puig. Hunter Pence and Nick Castellano. So I have Puig going to the Indians. I have Hunter Pence going to the Rays. Uh, the the Rangers ha- were a really fun story, but they've completely fallen apart. They've lost like fourteen of seventeen or whatever. Uh, their their Cinderella story is somewhat over. And Pence has been one of the best stories of the year. And I, I think we've talked about it a couple of times. You know, he remade a swing over the winter, signed as a non roster guy, was named as the starting DH for the American League in the All Star game, which is really cool. The Rays have been vocal about their need for a right handed bat. Uh, they tried to get Edwin Encarnacion before the Yankees did. You could have Puig going to the Rays and Pence going to the Indians, like pick them, toss up. Uh, but I, I went with Pence to the Rays because I figured he could probably get a little more DH time there. And then the third guy is Nick Castellanos, um, who is an impending free agent on a Tigers team that's going nowhere. But I have a hard time finding a fit for him. He is a below average outfielder and he has not been crushing the ball. Like he's, he's been hitting better lately, uh, but it's just it's hard to find a spot because I don't think he's a good enough defender to play in the NL. And if you are an American League team, well, you might just rather have Puig uh, or Pence. So I have him staying because traditionally it seems like the, the Tigers have had a hard time making these deals. They, they seem to ask for too much and then it doesn't happen. Um, and then they sort of regret it. So I think Castellanos will stay and I don't think he's going to be terribly happy about it based on his comments about his home park in, in uh, Detroit. Um, number 12, Mike Miner. If the Rangers are going to sell, this is a tough one. He's under contract next year. They're opening a new ballpark next year. They want to be a successful team. And so it's very possible that they could hold on to him. I could easily see that. He's been really good. But you also have to wonder, is this the peak of his value? You know, he's he's not that young anymore. And if Bumgarner stays and if Stroman, let's say, go to the A's, well, the Yankees need a starter, like pretty badly. Mike Miner to the Yankees. Love it. And the Yankees seem intent on getting a starter. I, They've been linked to Stroman a lot. You know, he's kind of said he would love to play in New York. He's from Long Island. I know I don't. I generally try not to put too much stock in teams not wanting to trade in their division. But the Blue Jays, I think, front office has gotten a lot of heat from that local fan base, from some of the moves they made the last couple of years. The fans are really frustrated. I don't think they want to trade him to the Yankees and watch him win a World Series to the Yankees. I just think, I, I think if anything, if things are equal and they have similar offers from like a team like the A's and the Yankees, they're not trading with the Yankees. I mean, that might be true. Mostly I looked at it as the Yankees uh, have somewhat of a, a preference in pitching style, you know, and a low strikeout ground ball guy doesn't seem to be the kind of guy they usually prefer. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, they usually like to get, you know, lefties to try and like negate some of the, the, the quote unquote short porch, of course, Happened, Paxton. It kind of been disappointment that, that hasn't right. exactly worked out. Part of the reason they need a starter because those guys haven't been that reliable. To me, the X factor in all of these trade conversations about starting pitchers um, is the Brewers. 
with Brendan Woodruff, who is kind of emerging as their ace and looking like yeah. um, string an oblique. He's out at least six weeks, and obliques you never know. It's like so yeah, it's call it September. The, so to me, the, the they also had Drew Smiley. Not that he's a savior, but then he they let him go because he had an out in his, his contract. He went and signed with the Phillies and actually pitched a good game. The Did other pitch day. pretty well, yeah. Um, so now that the the, the the Brewers are I think are going to be in on the starting pitching market. It's going to make it a lot harder for these teams to hold on to their starters. I think the offers are going to get a little bit better, so it's going to be a little harder for the for the Rangers to say, okay, we're going to hold on to minor or the um, or maybe even the Tigers with Matt, Matthew Boyd. Although Boyd has like what three years of control yeah, running I, after I, this. I have him not being traded here because I think yeah he's got three more years of control. Although he's, he's had a rough stretch. I mean he's still been striking guys out, but he's been giving up home runs left and right. It's really just about the fact that he's still like twenty eight. I think uh, has three more years of control, and at a certain point the Tigers need to stop churning assets and to like hang on to the guys they have to build around. So that's why I have him staying. Uh, the next two guys on my list are both relievers, and I have them both going to the Dodgers because the Dodgers will not go into another postseason with another bullpen hole. Uh, Ken Giles and Chris Martin. Now, Ken Giles, I think, is obvious. They don't care about the saves, but they do care about the dominance. He's just blowing guys away. He's got the second highest strikeout percentage in baseball this year. Uh, he looks like a different guy compared to the guy who kind of flamed out with the Astros at the end. Well, that's that, that would be my... Uh, my how much do you, do you think the team... the Because the Dodgers... He flamed out against the Dodgers, basically, in the World Series two years ago, where the Astros lost all faith in using him in that series in any sort of big spot. Can I offer a counterpoint to that? Sure. The Brewers signed Yasmani Grandal. That's true. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Uh, and he wouldn't be replacing Kenley Jansen. You know, he's there as the eighth inning guy slash backup closer, whatever. For sure. The- no, it just it. I think you make a good point, but it's it it's it's interesting that it would be that it would be very the narrative is very strong with that one. Uh, but I I just don't think that they are interested in a guy like Shane Green, who's you know. He's a good pitcher, but he's also on the run of like the 30 best innings of his entire life. Uh, and the peripherals just don't back that up. I have Green going to the Nationals, by the way, because they need someone ahead of Sean Doolittle. Chris Martin, we talked about last week briefly. He is on a run. He hasn't walked a guy since April 30th. He's on a run of like 35 strikeouts since his last walk. He is a fascinating story as we delved into. He's 33 years old and has just over a year of service time, but he will be a free agent at the end of the year because he went to Japan. And he came back, and that is the rule. So he, the Rangers are obligated to release him at the end of the season. Oh, that's interesting. So he's going to be a free agent. Uh, as we said, the Rangers are probably selling. Now, quickly, I think Felipe Vasquez goes nowhere. I mean, Neil Huntington has said as much. I I don't really think that's necessarily a smart strategy, but... Well, I, I just... Since he's so effective, and he's got a very reasonable contract, like four more years... Oh, I guess they did sign him. They signed him to that, like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. With, like, two team options. He's under control through, like, 2022 or whatever. They're basically saying uh, our our asks are going to be absurd. Like, there was a rumor that they were going to ask for uh, from the Dodgers, like, Will Smith, the catcher, and Gavin Lux, the shortstop, who is hitting, like... 800, 900, 1,000 in AAA. And of course, the Dodgers aren't going to do that. But of course, the Pirates should be asking for that. I don't think he's going to get moved. I don't think Trevor Bauer is going to get traded because how could you possibly do that if you're the Indians and you're three games out of first place and you're, you have a wild card spot? I mean, Tre- Bauer is fascinating to me because I think that he's not going to be on the Indians next year, almost certainly. They're going to, if not, they don't trade him now, they're going to trade him in the offseason. And I do wish teams were a little bit more creative with midseason deals. It always feels like it's okay. I'm going to trade my big leaguer for your prospects and vice versa. Because Bauer has a year left of team control, it doesn't seem crazy to me that you could craft a deal with a team where you could get players to – where you could almost do like a big leaguer for big leaguer swap. Or the Indians might say like, you know what, you can have this guy. He can help you down the stretch. Also, I just don't think – that I think the, 
he may, I wouldn't say Warhouse welcome, but I think that maybe yeah, they you. want him on a different team. So where they said, great, I think the, um, the, uh, the Padres are no longer a great example because I think they've kind of faded out, but they could have said like, okay, we'll trade you Bauer in a deal for Framil Reyes or, you know, Hunter, Hunter Renfro. We want to get some power back for our outfield or something where, you know, the centerpieces are big leaguers and there might be prospects around it uh, where you could craft that sort of deal with Bauer because he's not a rental. But I agree with that, except if you do that and you're Cleveland, you have to be really, really confident that Corey Kluber and Carlos Carrasco are coming back, which... We assume they both are, but you just don't know. And then if you if they don't, or if one of them doesn't, and then you've traded Bauer, your number one starter is Mike Clevenger, who's really good. But all of a sudden, that strength is not a strength. For sure, you'd, you'd have you'd have to have real certainty that at least one of those guys was going to come back and be effective. And you know they're they're huge wild cards right now, and that's why I think it probably won't happen. But to me, Bauer is fascinating for that reason because there are a lot of creative trades I think you could craft around a player with a year and a half left of of, serv- of uh, team control where you could trade him but still be kind of like in you know win now mode uh the final name on my list is todd frazier i have just about no confidence in this prediction but i made it anyway i haven't gone to the red sox and that's because even though the red sox need more pitching it doesn't seem uh just based on all the rumors that they're going to go and get somebody big uh Raphael devers has been fantastic at third base but he's got large platoon splits he's a left-handed hitter frazier still hits righty uh, still hits lefty pitching uh and he can also play some first base mitch Moreland can hit lefties Steve Pierce was supposed to be this guy, but he's been hurt. He might not come back at all this season. It's like a low impact, just like bench bat. You know, they just dropped Eduardo Nunez. Uh, it feels like it's a minor-ish move. That's probably not going to happen, but I put it on the list anyway. It makes sense. I doubt the return would be much, but did yeah. it make, I mean, he, he, fits, he fits that roster. Now, again, this is just 20 names. These are not the only 20 names. I didn't mention Kirby Yates. I didn't mention, I don't know, Rysel Iglesias, uh, you know, uh, Michael Givens for Baltimore. Like, There's 25 just relievers who are going to get traded, uh, but these are my 20 predictions, and I am hopeful that at least one is correct. I am sure that one of the ones that will be correct will be a guy is not traded, but I'm more hopeful that one of the ones where I picked a new team, that's much more satisfying to me. We are going to have one more show before the trade deadline. We will do a show next Tuesday, a week from today. The trade deadline is next Thursday, July 31st. Uh, next Wednesday. Next Wednesday, July 31st. And it is the only, tra- it is the only trade deadline, folks, remember. It is. Uh, next Wednesday, July 31st. Uh, so thank you for correcting me on that. So we will have a show on July 30th, by which point I assume something will have happened. I, like The NL is weird. Teams are probably going to wait until the very last second to decide they're in it or not. But the final day should be very interesting this year, I think. Oh, it's going to – I mean, the, uh, there will be – in the last 36 hours before the deadline, I think that like 30 relievers will get traded. <laughs> 30 relievers. That is almost one reliever per hour. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So we will uh, catch up on what's happened next week and look ahead to the final day. This is the MLB.com StackCast podcast. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 